In this edition of the podcast, Sangeeta Sandrasegar, born in Brisbane of Malaysian and Australian parents, she spent her childhood growing up between both countries. Her exploration of India and Australia as personal sites of both homecoming and ancestry, and as nations with related colonial histories, propels her current projects. In conversation with Professor Pedram Kosronajad, Sangeeta discusses working on various projects with varying expectations and the relationship between artist, curator and gallery. I'm Tim Stackpole and welcome to Inside the Gallery. Hello and thanks for taking a listen to the podcast once again as we acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land upon which this podcast is produced and downloaded and acknowledge their elders past, present and emerging. And of course, you can read a transcript of this discussion via the link at this episode's description at www.insidethegallery.com.au and that's thanks to the contribution made by the Australian Arts Channel, which is available to view for free at www.australianartschannel.com.au Sangeeta Sandrasegar's art practice is centred on hybridity theories and explores her life in Australia as an artist of Malaysian, Indian and Australian heritage and the relationship between migrant communities and homelands. Her practice including her highly regarded work with paper cutouts, has engaged with shadows as an ephemeral motif, symbolising the movement of cultures and people. Recently too, Sangeeta's work has involved the dyeing of large flowing fabric panels, with particular focus on the nature and message of colours, particularly indigo. Good friend of this podcast, Professor Pedram Kosronajad of Western Sydney University, previously worked with Sangeeta in his role as creator of Shaka and Kaga, an exhibition at Sydney's Powerhouse Museum, celebrating India's anniversary of independence. And in this conversation, the professor discusses with Sangeeta the nature of her work, the strong international influences, and the manner by which curators, gallerists and artists work together. So today, uh, Sangeeta, we want to talk about you and your artistic world and a little bit, if you can kindly introduce yourself for our audiences about the background culturally, where you're grown up and what did you do as uh, your journey in the world of art? Hi, Pedram. I am primarily a visual artist and I work across various mediums and often call myself under the umbrella of installation art because that sort of allows the sort of flexibility for me to create dynamic projects that then can be, you know, compartmentalised or broken into parts. I work in my studio predominantly with paper and do a lot of cutting out with paper and creating sort of smaller works that deal with shadow play. And then I also try to expand my practice by working through ideas on through different materials to sort of do two things that the materials actually speak to the ideas within the project, but also the um, search to work with new materials is also a search to find people that are experts in in those kind of sections of the creative arts or visual arts so that then I can actually learn. So in this way, I expand my practice both um, in the research I'm doing, which um, drives the work, and then get to keep learning new sort of visual techniques to expand upon those ideas. So I don't just work in one medium. 
And so when people ask me, what do you make? Are you a painter or you know, are you a sculptor? I, I can't really, I can't really answer that. I've never adequately answered that because I sort of like to work with people that fabricate in different materials and through them and that process of learning and sharing, there becomes another kind of formulation in the project as well. That's the sort of production side of where um, I sort of, how I house my projects. The sort of concepts that run through my work are concepts that I've integrally sort of dealt with for the past 20 years or since, you know, studying my my arts degrees and then continuing on. And they are just largely informed from my personal upbringing and life, my hereditary. Um, I was born in Australia to an Australian mother and my father was um, Malaysian Indian. And as children, we lived between the two countries, predominantly in Malaysia as younger children until we settled more permanently in Australia. We had a constant upbringing of travel and shift and of, you know, six months here, six months there. So it was migratory, but it was also about movement and change. And as a child growing up, there were times you found that disruptive, but then that was educational. And then there were times that you really embraced it. And there was always a sense in a way while we, in a sense, had two homelands to call home, there was also a sense of also also always remaining a migrant in either place. And I think this sort of sense of ambivalence is what actually structured my decisions to, you know, not become an academic as the kind of schooling that, you know, being, again, if we look at stereotypes, that sort of Asian sense of schooling. My father was a doctor, he came over here and studied. He met my mother, who was a medical illustrator. So both, you know, invested in education and training. And to decide to become a visual artist sort of followed in my mother's steps for wanting to be an artist herself, but not realizing that. Um, But it also became for me the answer where I could just constantly research and propel and learn. And I'm sure if I'd become a doctor or I'd become a lawyer, if I could have managed those degrees, I would have found ways to keep learning there. But I chose art and that's uh, that's the the lot I'm I'm, I'm dealt now. But it's um, and it's through that that I have the room to explore these themes that, again, are so formative, pedagogical, formative structures. And um, I've taken them through. So I still deal with that sense of migration and cultures and trade. And um, it is a very present context and topic for Australia. And um, living in Australia through the 80s and the sort of shifts in cultural waves and seeing this through to the 90s and the, the next generations of um, children with mixed heritages and just the the constant development of multicultural Australia is um is rich and it's growing and it sits within a sort of it sits within still a very uh generic anglo structured umbrella this is where i find um the younger artists coming up the different the different languages they use and the different sort of forms that they battle with really interesting but i still feel like i speak from you know perhaps more older semantic takes I'm not quite sure but that's where I, I, I see the relevance still stays placed through and as we kind of keep developing and keep studying and uncovering more in our archives so to speak we keep refreshing the stories and refreshing the perspectives as a lot as the research you do so that's kind of the where I suppose that's the gamut of my work that I'm interested in invested in hybridity multicultural um, migrationary stories and particularly placing that from the Australian um, perspective the Australian sightline and I think that is a very particular position within the world and it's something that we kind of are put within the Southern Hemisphere or the Pacific visuals, but we're kind of quite distinct to, you know, our Pacific neighbours and um, the relative, so I'm interested in, you know, the relativities between that and our Southeast Asian connections. 
Wow. Thank you so much, Sangeeta. Such a rich and multifaceted cultural and ethnical backpack you have. <laughs> uh, because it's fascinating. Your mom was a mythical illustrator. Can you a little bit develop it for us? What was your mom's profession? Yeah, so she, um, she worked in a hospital so at the time when she worked as a hospital and a medical illustrator. So before, you know, I mean, obviously there was photography. There's always been the advent of photography for documenting since, you know, its development and obviously as a scientific construct. But in the end, it, for a long time and still in a way, the time to take to illustrate and to sort of capture different variants and to make diagrams is where a medical illustrator sits. So her job was actually in a hospital. She was at the Royal Women's and she was either she would either be doing diagrams and sort of more um, technical drawings that would be included in the textbooks for um, medical studies or she was doing quite more detailed um, observational drawings of, um, you know, of specimens. So if you think of those kind of medical uh, libraries that have specimens and have all these records, then there are also um, sort of, there's also the visual like um, recording and archival of that. And she would sit somewhere in there. Fascinating. Do you think this type of scientific art and handwork that you did see through your mom since childhood influence a little bit you to work with paper yes I do yeah I wonder I think that um her work and the idea of medical illustration or documentation and sort of the beauty that sits within that but also the sort of the science and the horror that can that you know that sort of visual horror that we have when we view specimens that sort of back and forth I think that certainly played a lot into realizing what visuals can do or how they can conduct education or you know our way of knowledge and yeah, I've often thought about that because then my father, he wasn't a surgeon, but he was an anesthetist. So I sort of think, because I cut my paper with a scalpel, I always sort of feel exactly. that it's... Exactly. Yeah, it's, it's very medical <laughs> tools that you use for cutting the paper. And even if, uh, please correct me, I'm wrong, working with dyeing and coloring the textile, somehow you are working with chemical materials, action, reaction in water, liquids is a little bit when you know am i correct all of these things are related to parents i think that's what uh i you know it's taken me into these last 5 years that i've been invested with the idea of color and um and then particularly actually where where you know natural color so how would it, how did the older civilizations actually come across color and produce it and find it find various ways of communicating it in a color fast manner and learning about these processes and realizing how sort of technical and scientific they are has been really the um, unexpected real generosity of this research and what I'm really enjoying. That you know, And then when you realize that civilization, you know, thousands of years old, somehow managed to perfect digging out a certain kind of iron and ore and working out how to treat it in certain ways for it to color fabric and, you know, different plants that they extracted color from eventually. It's, um, it's something I can't speak in a very scientific manner because I'm still learning about it, but that's how I see it. And um, I, I Beautiful. So first, before going to textile and dyeing technique and science, you were you told us you went to um, cut papers. Can you tell us about that world of your art? Were you inspired? Because I see there are very sophisticated motifs and cuttings that you have with dimensional from shadow works. Can you explain those series of your artwork for us? Yeah, so that the 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 cutout paperwork really developed when I was at university, and um, 
near the end of my undergraduate, I started working more with paper and had a painting undergraduate, but wasn't very confident with, um, you know, the thickness and the paints and canvas and started to move to the lightness of paper and realising as well how durable that material is, that you can really put it under a lot of stresses and it's still it's still so strong and yet in the fine art canon sort of that's, you know, paperworks and drawings have always sort of been secondary and this is what we've been also trying to break down in, in the sense of structural hierarchies of the visual arts, but paper. So I suppose that's why it was interesting and that was the sort of pivot of my work was I wanted to, I realised that I just loved, I loved shadows and that I, I, I loved the optics of light and um, objects and that they could create shadows and that sort of ephemerality of that, of what the shadow represented. And I realised to be able to create a shadow or third space in my work spoke to the sort of sense of movements and hybridity concepts and third spaces and grey areas, all these sort of coin words of the 80s, 90s. It visually spoke to that and that's that's I like that and I like that I could I wanted to then realise I wanted to create works that had another space in them, inherent in them. And so, you know, working in galleries and hanging the work but using specific lighting meant people sometimes lost the actual work on the wall because if I had it, if it was cut with white or light colours, it might um, fade into the wall, but then it would actually be outlined through its shadow. So the the, the difference between the dark and light and um, the works were always installed away from the wall to create this extra space. So there was always a tension of space and how they sat. And that is how I sort of got into the work very early on. And it became then a metaphor and a symbol that has kind of progressed now and I still I still care about that and that's still sort of fundamental to any work I make that somehow there's a transience and a and a movement in the work through some kind of light interplay whether in somehow of the materiality and these paperworks are like that and I still continue to produce them to this day so that's always a mainstay of my practice and it's something as you say there's there's the delicacy and the intricacy in the paper cut so to maintain that side of my practice always it gives me that quiet time to also reassess and think about other projects as I make these, you know, I might be working on a project that I've worked out the themes and content and I can sit there and produce it. And in that production time, there's that there's the room to move and think about where a new project might come from. So this is, I think, still really important generative time. And these cutouts too then have progressed as I've moved. They, they used to be sort of simple colours. Then I started to decorate them with glitter and sequences because I was dealing with a lot of Indian and Bollywood references and Japanese references. So the colours kind of came from Japanese manga and Indian Bollywood. And this was sort of all the colour and excitement that was there in my, you know, early 20s. And then I suppose I got to my 30s and things subdued a bit and I sort of started to work with just black and white palettes and materials. And then lately I started to bring colour back into the work by actually painting. So I cut the works out and then I watercolour and paint them. And so the, the history of watercolour and painting has come back into the work. And now most recently, realising that paper is such a strong, durable material, I've actually started to try dyeing these cutouts. And that brings us now, you know, to the sort of sense of something that's been in my practice for 20 years. It can also go with the developments that I'm interested in. During this trajectory after your graduation until now for cut paper art, did you travel to these countries? Did you back home uh, in Asia and study a traditional folkloric handmade paper cuts in this country, the techniques of coloring, painting or dyeing paper? And back home here, use those journeys, fruits or not? It took me a couple of, but going back again to those early years of starting to work with paper. And I think this is again goes back to then what you said about the, those four, what we were talking about, the formative years and the influence of my parents. But 
I started cutting out the paper and was so kind of interested in the shadows they were making. And then as my skill with the scalpel developed, the, the images could become more intricate. And when they sort of developed within a year or two to um, sort of greater line work, is when people I started to realize that oh, there's all the Chinese paper cutouts that I grew up with in Malaysia that were stuck on windows around Chinese New Year or for people's weddings and birthday celebrations when we would go to they they were resonating there. And then I was you know realizing oh, so I was buying I started buying those kind of books that talked with those talked to those craft cultures and you know and I still use those reference books which are about Chinese paper cutting and so forth. And I use that. I often reference and take that imagery directly into an image I'm making. And then most secondly, you know, and it took me a long time before people sort of, I realized, oh, the Wayang Kulit with the Indonesian and Malaysian shadow puppets were again around me. And um, certainly my mum, who was so, you know, was an, is an art, you know, art, was an artist. That was a big part of our life too, how much she collected whilst we were in Malaysia of ceramics and um, of textiles. And then, so we always had, you know, there was always one my uncle that's sitting somewhere in the house, a pair of them framed. There was always the paper cutouts given to us around our birthdays. So it actually, that sort of cutout imagery was actually around me all my childhood. And it so you, you, had, you had the family collection, actually, of all of these material cultures could help you, you know, to develop your visual work, observing the techniques that you had around yourself and develop your own self-style of working. Yes, yeah, I think so. And then that's it. And sometimes, you know, when you're young, you just don't, it takes you a while to actually appreciate what you, how you've actually just um, subconsciously taken it all in. But now I see that. And now sort of, yeah, moving amongst my parents' collections now that they're older and I'm cleaning them up and finding books on salad and ceramics and on silverware and stuff. And stuff I see that all this imagery that I oh very interesting gotten. yeah yes sometimes we need visual reminders to say oh yes by the way I did see this book when I was fifteen and oh this is the ceramic that you know it was in my mind how interesting maybe unconsciously you continue to use them in your artworks and today after twenty thirty years you back to the source yeah yes <laughs> so when you when and why you shift from cutting paper to dyeing and working with textile? There was, that happened just yeah, in the recent years. So I would say I've been sort of, yeah, I'd say in the last five years, it's this big, been this shift. And I was, um, I was invited to do a show with Victoria Lynn at the Tarawara Art Museum. And it was called, the, the, the title of the show when she was thinking about it was going to be The Tangible Trace. And it was the idea she wanted, it was, um, they do a, an international biennial um, every two years and she wanted to work with a couple of Indian artists and then um, a sort of Southeast Asian artists and then but she sort of also wanted an Australian some couple of Australian artists that had that sort of same background so um, heritage and so she so we she started developing the project around me saying I want to work with you because you know the idea that you the shadows has always been in your work it is what is really the inspiration for this show and so we started to talk about my themes and what I would be interested in. And while we were talking, then she started to think about artists that she would want to put around in this group show. So it was a conversation with her. And so she did specifically want works that dealt with that the shadow that would trace, you know, this idea about the trace. And um, but I didn't want to because the spaces at the Tarawara Museum are quite vast and big. They're beautiful. I wanted something, I, I sort of wanted to deal with some different materiality rather than my paperworks. And so then I started to propose to her, well, can I, I can I use this too as a as a platform or a mount, you know, as a springboard to consider new work? 
And um, so then that's when I was starting to look at colours. I'd been living in Germany and I was sort of starting to investigate, I suppose, you know, within the science of Germany stuff. I started to think about colour for some reason. I think it was travelling between Germany and Australia and just appreciating the beautiful differences of light between the two countries. They both have such great differences of light, colour and structure. And I think that was really what played in my mind. I just have these beautiful images of the forest in Germany in spring and in autumn and how the light filters through them. But then when I'm here in Australia and I see these vast open plains and these blue skies in such a different way and how crops can just glow in the sun, it was these kind of resonating colours of golds and blues and greens. I really thought, oh, this comes from the natural world. And so that's when I started to think more about natural colour. There were these very um, structural architectural window placements in one gallery in Tarawara and I decided I wanted to use those windows, the light that came through them and obscure them and actually make the make work that sat around the window rather than sat on the gallery wall. So then that's when I started to think about colour and other materials and obviously it couldn't be paper and and then I began that sort of journey and the pinpoint colour at the time for that investigation, knowing it was about travels and journeys, was it was going to be based around indigo. I wanted to base it around colours around the Tarawara, like the Yarra Valley region, um, but because I didn't know enough and, um, you know, there's that, that overlay of working within cultural lands and practices and how you can understand that. So we kind of thought, well, actually, why don't I look at my own a cultural colour in my own sort of, that sits within my own research practice and in, indigo wonderfully represented that. So then I started working in Indigo. What was the name of that installation for that exhibition? So the name of that installation was called What Falls From View. In the end, I did find a plant that creates a beautiful colour in Australia. So I was in Germany and I was trying to research someone, a dye specialist that I could work with who could help me. And I came across this girl, I got this contact with this girl that's in Melbourne, Heather Thomas, and she actually spent a lot of time in India too, like refining her her knowledge of Indian dye, Indigo dyeing. But she worked predominantly for the greater half of her sort of knowledge was sat within Australian plants. And so she showed me, then introduced me to this plant, the native cherry, which is a tree that kind of grows diversely through the eastern regions of Australia. But when you boil up their leaves, it creates a beautiful gold. And it's sort of that gold that really represents, you know, that sort of when we talk about the Australian green and gold, it's that yellow that it can make. So I decided to work with these two colours and that spoke to the, my ideas of my life and project and how I try to find place. There's this beautiful yellow Australian colour and this beautiful blue that comes from an Indian plant. And the the histories between the development and structures between them is what drove the sort of content and theory of the work. And then it became about creating these two colours, but then also joining them and in that I got the diversity of greens that we see in our natural worlds and um, it became an overlay of these two colours and they hung within the windows of the space. So the light that fell through the day across winter obliquely and so forth shone through the work and made it move in new ways each time. Not not literally move, but, you know, um, visually change and shift. But again, the role of light was important, yes. like your paper cut, <laughs> the role of Shadow and light very important. That metaphor of movement through light and shadow in this new work. Um, I think it was during this process that, again, you developed your future activities, what you want to do. But here I have a curatorial question. This is, I think, when uh, you and I, we became uh, familiar with our work and it was when um, Powerhouse uh, invited you for being part of exhibition Charfan Karga, 
because uh, as a curator of that exhibition was in my mind that how we can connect the past to the present and think about future. And your work was very interesting uh, for me as a curator. You just create this installation for that exhibition, those specific spaces work with light and the light was very important. And you and I, we had several talks and thinking. Can you tell our audiences about your experience of previously worked installation that you have and your experiences uh, to work together as a curatorial? And when you did see those objects of the past in the powerhouse collection and thought about new installation, how, how was that experience for you? That was a very satisfying, uh, a really satisfying experience because I think uh, this goes back to when I was saying at the beginning, I I say I would make installation work and that I sort of see the works, you know, created. I say installation because it is a way to explain the parts or the components that sit within the work. And that, and in, in that, I suppose, I mean that when I make work, there can be parts and it's about, for me, I want to create works that are giving enough that they can be perhaps reassembled or moved into different conditions and whether that's um, all together so or whether that's um, in separate in separate parts and they can hold themselves individually or as as units you know reconfigured so um, the work what falls from view that I developed for Tarawara was specifically at the time speaking to those concerns of that architecture and that gallery presence the sort of overlay of the um, settler culture in Australia over, you know, the first traditional owners of the land, and then the immigrant eye that comes into that, um, into that perspective. And this is where Australia sits now in our current debates constantly. We, we battle between the three, the original custodians, the settler colonial overlay that we can't seem to get beyond the, the royal family, and, um, and then the constant rich diversification that comes through our migratory patterns and immigration. That's what that work said about. And so the what falls from you was also about obstructing the view out of the gallery so that the eye was turned into the gallery and had to really look at what was there and what wasn't there. And that's what fell from view, like our perceptions of what we see and what we understand. But the idea is that those works would potentially be movable or reconfigured in another way, that they can travel just as the migratory patterns, patterns that represent Australia. We, yeah, we adapt ourselves to new space you know, as migrants. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I think the beauty of your work is your installations are hybrid installations. Yeah, that's why it was so such a privilege to have you invite the work into conversation with the powerhouse. And I, f- I find that when these invitations happen or these uh, to to see the work anew, it makes me feel oh, if it has that means there's a strength in the work. There are other contexts there, and I may talk about just sort of one particular strain that sits in the work for one show, and I'm not talking about all the other bits that sit within it. And for you, when you invited me to consider the work at the powerhouse within also the, the umbrella concerns of the show, a tie-in for you was the actual choice of fabrics that sat within the work, so the khadi. And that was deliberately chosen because it sits within the sort of the history of Indian independence and the history of Indian craftsmanship and sustainability today with the village weaver. So again, it's that, you know, thinking historically in the present, producing historically in the present, all these terms that the powerhouse constantly, you know, explores or has to reinvigorate when you have a collection that has dealt with technical and scientific tools and how they can be explored or employed or understood in the present. And um, to see the work be able to transition into that kind of context 
and to understand the indigo as well, not just through its colours, but through the, um, the technical innovations of, of cultures that developed indigo. The show at the powerhouse was about all that, the weaving, the development of the material, the weavers that you had bring across. It talked to all that sort of production that sits within the visual. And then you had these beautiful examples of pieces. It's very interesting now we think about that because we never, you and I, talk about this exhibition and your installation in it. I think we had really objects that back to 1880s from India that were ended in for different reasons in powerhouse. And as you said, one of the reasons our exhibition was the anniversary of independence of India. So we did see in different occasions in this exhibition, the transference of knowledge and tradition and development, especially Indigo and Kadi. And I think it was very good collaboration between artists, which is you and curator myself and the entire exhibition design, where first we installed your installation with the wall, which was white. So visitors could come and see in the continuation of exhibition, the development and migration of objects and technology from India to Australia, and then finish with yours. Just look at it. And then in very end, we installed the second part of project of Anu Kumar on the wall behind your installation, which is about Indian migrant communities in Australia, Sydney and Victoria, but based on textile. And I think visually it worked very well when people look at exhibition and through your installation, new photographs of Anu Kumar. I think it was quite very successful message that we could see when we know, we hear you and Anu's strategies for this project. What do you think, this combination of your work with Anu Kumar's photographs? That is also, yeah, another beautiful, you know, offset to the to the development of the work and to then obviously the whole structure of the show. But to have these two, yeah, contemporary responses to, to see the production in, you know, today. So one through sort of the physicality of the artwork and the other second through the sort of the beautiful ph- photography that documents the process, the current actual realities of that process today as well. And then I think that sense of the objecthood of, of my hanging panels and the translucency of them, but then that interplay to come to the end and sort of see that, but then to still see works through it and see movement. And that adds to the interplay of the, I think of, of the um, the resonances between both those contemporary artworks. Um, yes. And photos and, and then and mine. And it plays into that sort of exotic difference, you know, like that we look through and, and what we see and, you know, that, again, that sort of sense of what falls from view. Also, you know, if you remember your installation, they could like dancing in the air, in the space. We'd make it very poetic. So, Sangeeta, where you are going, I think after uh, Powerhouse, you had several other installations and exhibitions. Can you tell us uh, about them? I suppose coming out of the Indigo works that were at the Powerhouse, I was then starting to look at, um, in the last couple of years, last two years, another another colour. So I've been looking at red, and so I've been looking at Indian matter. So last the last project I just did was um, for the Sharjah Biennial, and that that show is actually called Thinking Historically in the Present, and it's um, obviously concentrates around the sort of uh, Middle East, Southeast Asian di- uh, artists, and then also the diasporic artists within um, sort of the you know that have migrated to America, Canada, Australia. So there's you know there's artists. Wow! Congratulations. 
So it's a you know it's a big this is big a big show and um, but again it's the same it's mining the territories and discussions that we're having now and just all this other sort of similar ways these are being realised and that work was a series then so where my work was presented within the biennial which again had many beautiful and flexible spaces the pieces that were t- chosen for that were actually um, a series of paper cutouts so. Um, it was a series of 105 works. So there was 100 wow. cutouts that I had, which were probably around um, A4, A3 scale that referenced the Wayang Kulet style. And these were all dyed, the paperworks were actually all hand dyed in indigo in the way we were dyeing the materials that once falls from view. And then there were five very large works which were um, made dyeing them in, in the Indian matter. So five huge red works, which had to be created in quite a different way for the papers because the um, the actual dye and practice for that is a lot heavier and it's hot water and you're putting paper into boiling hot water. So this was um, the scientific part of the project, me trying to work out how I can make paper go through that process of the matter process. Whereas with the indigo, it's a, it's a slightly different form and it was easier to make the blue. Yeah, quite a complex work too, 100 pieces referencing the Wayang Kulit and then five pieces that reference another visual art form from India called Katakali. And that's a religious theatrical form, a dance form, which is performed. It's a performance that will go overnight. Both of these forms, art forms, are actually representations of um, a very classic Hindu text. So this work, again, spoke to the idea of like these classic texts that get disseminated. And so these texts, it's still being performed through the Katakali. It's performed by the Katakali, this text. They perform all night and in a way they start to embody the God. It's the sort of sense of spiritual performances where the activity and the and the audience, it's becomes it's a religious sort of ceremony. But um going back to the sense of inside the gallery, you know, it's um it's a, a very rich um sultanate and they have some beautiful spaces. But my work was shown in their sort of museum, which has a very classical overlay and structure. And I had two rooms that sort of face each other off a corridor. So the blue works were in one and the red works against the in the other wall. But again, interesting to see the works that I've installed more flexibly in other spaces be presented in such a kind of very historic building and context. And again, it sort of spits to what you're sort of saying about the movement that I want of my works and also how they can sit in different spaces and how you work with the gallery in that way, I suppose, inside the gallery that way. So that was an experience from afar because I was conducting those installations via Zoom and went only over once the show opened. Wow. You you are doing a hybrid artist installation, I see, uh, after experience with me in Powerhouse, now with the charge. It's very interesting how the after COVID or, you know, this type of Zoom artist curator museum things is developing. So may I ask in this, because Sharjah is culturally entirely different, it's another culture, uh, mostly majority Muslim community, Muslim visitors. How was the reception to your installation and artworks? I suppose because it's so far away and it's quite a big uh, show. Uh, we went across for the opening week, and since then, I've you know I've heard people that have been, and I think they get obviously they have a large international audience. So I think there has been lots of different positive readings, and it'll be interesting to see what happens or if there will be any uptake on the work after this exposure. So, but it'll, yeah, it'll be interesting to see. But I mean, obviously, is it still too early? I think you know we need time to see uh, other museums and galleries and artists contact. Saying that one of our, the main aims of our podcast, as the title of podcast, inside the gallery, 
is the experiences between artists and galleries and galleries and cultural spaces, knowing the fact that you confirm you are a different artist because the nature of your artwork, art production is different, is concerned, light, installation, big space. Can you tell us, share a little bit your experiences working with galleries and gallerists and uh, private curators when you want to work? How, what's your experiences in this regard? I think on the whole, mostly one's experiences are mostly positive because if you are invited to a show or if you are working with a um, a commercial dealer, it's because those people have interest in your work and they already have a positive reception. So in that sense, for, for that experience, it mostly remains pretty positive. And so again, the commercial things, they can be negative in the sense that obviously you might want to work with commercial galleries or have different, you know, have commercial representation with a space that you might appreciate. But if they don't appreciate you, then, you know, the, those conversations don't really get to happen. But when a commercial gallery is interested in you, then obviously the conversations are receptive. And then how you develop the work is mostly receptive or up to the time that you know, maybe that relationship may, may break down if there's more pressures from the from the commercial gallerist onto the artist. So I'd say in that sense, there's, you know, there's certainly galleries that I look around at and would like to show it, but they wouldn't be interested in the work. And so then that's, I suppose, the frustration sometimes for an artist, how to expand those or how to make those conversations happen and um, get yourself seen in those ways if you want to be sort of seen in that way. And then with commercial galleries that you do work with and you have an understanding, I've only had a couple, you know, they've been longstanding relationships. So that's, that's that's why. And my first gallery was when I started showing, and that's how by being taken on by this gallery in Sydney, which is now no longer around. The gallery ended with a lot of debt, so a lot of artists weren't paid. So financially, it was a very dismal end to the, uh, to the relationship. But the primary years that I worked with him, and I was being such a young artist, he was, to me, like one of my greatest mentors. He really taught me about how to make work, how to feel confident speaking with curators, and how to feel confident about the presentation of my work. And where where to stand up for my work and also where to where to stand back and uh, accept a conversation or where to receive um, advice around the work and I think it was that it's that fine line of being strong around your work but for me being able to engage with curators so that when I get to meet someone like you I don't have and maybe that's my brain anyway I don't have a static thing but that you can always um find a new combinations and you can learn so much from a curator or you can from a gallerist that's what he taught me so I think this has been my fundamental arch um, through there and it hasn't shifted and the financial travails that happen as an artist that so that just seems to always happen so that's just one thing you have to just accept perhaps that you're always more there's always going to be more financial loss than accountability now I show uh, just recently in the last couple of years uh, Niagara Galleries so that's a very long-standing Australian gallery I should say not just Victorian Melbourne gallery and I've actually known Bill for the same time I started exhibiting in Sydney and um, my gallerist in Sydney and him were contemporaries and that's how I first met Bill that many years ago and um, I've always respected him and he is very respected in the art world for sustaining such a long uh, commercial gallery and also sustaining the relationships that he has with artists. So in that way he's obviously exhibits like great sensitivity and care towards his artists but also is um, a good businessman and he is he's he pays his artists so you know which is basically what I'm getting at he has quite a, a range but that that sort of long-standing uh, commitment to the art world I think is um is something that he sort of upholds and um and then the, the people that work around the gallery uh, uh, beautiful and it's, and that's just a very nice caring space and I think that's what in the end makes someone feel happy about having a commercial gallerist 
Um, and then, yeah, funnily enough, Anu that we were talking about, she works and is associated with the gallery as well. So that's been another really fun linking within your show and getting to know you both. I think it was very important for me too. Thanks to you, Bill and uh, Sarah came to exhibition, Charhan Karga. And we had very, I learned a lot, I should say. And this is, I think, the beauty of working the creators, artists and galleries together and open, you know, their comments and views on the installation about you, curatorial in the exhibition. And again, thanks to you. Thank you. You introduced me to uh, Bill and Sarah and still I, I continue. I uh, talk to them and get advice from them, you know, for the, the things that I do. Thank you for sharing with us. Sangeeta, uh, as one of the last questions, I had, since we walked together, I had this chance to, because you kindly provided your personal visual investigations with me to understand better your work and the concept of your work. It was amazing for me that how you are a researcher artist. I would like to ask you how the climate change as an artist and using the natural material and the sustainability of your artwork is important for you and thinking about the question of climate change and Anthropocene as an artist, contemporary artist, and also the preservation of your artworks for future. I'll start with the preservation question. I think again, still harks back to my thinking from when I was an art student. The integral sense of the works being about transparencies and etherealness and movement I never thought about the preservation of them and that they would be pieces that would eventually just just pass out like I think I never wanted to make pieces that become long-lasting so that whether how these works may or may not survive is not of um, of concern for me my concern is that they've been made and they've been in the world and that I suppose in that sense of the holistic sense of me feeling we come into this world and we go out, then I also want my works to have that sort of sense of life. And then obviously, but I do realise that now it does create complexity for works that then are acquired by museums because then it, it, it you know, it falls against it. it for it, conservation. Person, for conservation, yeah. Conservator and the collector yeah. and people that need to keep, we need to keep history. Like I want to make a part of history, but then I give them the challenge, well, you know, it may not be a part of, it may not be around for that part of history. And so I understand that's not a very fair play. And I suppose I'm starting to try and think about that a bit more. And so I suppose I learned that with some earlier textile works I did in um, around 2012 that were acquired by the Museum of Contemporary Art. And that's where, you know, I got this sort of condition report and I realised, well, oh, my God, the sequins I bought them from, you know, Brick Lane in London from like some cheap plastic shops. They could be plastic. They could be from this source. This could be you know, the, the cotton was some of it was cotton. Some was nylon. You know, it was such a mixed match of materials of just what I could afford as an artist in, you know, in London at the time. And then having to do this inventory for the conservator, I realised that's hard. And also the, the works were so fragile, they were just roughly torn so that they were fraying and that's part of it. And so I learned this idea that they may remain in their collection, but they would become rested. So, you know, they would be shown occasionally and under sort of, again, the lighting was the lighting that was such an important part as the works get older become it's an important part but it becomes a very subdued part the people that the works won't be lit as strongly as they ever were the first presentation now as people start to try and preserve as much as they can of these materials that 
this for this early iteration were probably a mix of synthetic and natural material. And so obviously even how they sit together is problematic. Um, so I learned this idea of resting and that, okay, perhaps works can be preserved and kept in the archive in that sense. And that's also some kind of beautiful continuity of my work that it's not always out there, but perhaps it lives that way. And so I'm happy for that to happen and that transition and to work with collections in that in that way to preserve them as much as they can. And if that means not showing, then that's part of that object's life. And then in the sense of global warming and and sustainability of the planet, then I think that's a really hard, that's a really hard one. I obviously I it's something I need to start to work out how far I analyze that through the practice and through the creation of works. Um, obviously, that's that's um, so that's already the sort of push and pull of, of working with natural dyes. And then the production of cotton is in itself ravenous to the landscape and the amount of water it needs. And mostly these are created in India, which can have high rains, but then also huge areas of barren drought land masses. It's it's a problematic crop that is needed for the sustainability of some farmers. And that's um, a problem to the rest of the, to the environments of others sections so inherent in even in working with the natural colors and with the cardi there are these inherent overlays of how do I produce these works and again there's more and more demand for people to work with natural use natural cotton natural fibers it's like a sort of this or that do we go for the natural fibers and work and use a lot of water or do we accept that maybe synthetics work in a certain way because we're preserving water like where do we sit in in the environmental sort of seesaw that we as humans are creating because we just have a lot of need and want is it we just need to pay back and then as an artist it's like well how much do I pay back and not work with paper or cotton I mean paper production too uses a lot of water and the milling of the trees the growth of the trees exactly is there's not always black or white and it's important that we know that artists today creators of galleries we are thinking about the climate change we need to continue to talk about it also, we are developing to thinking how we can be, you know, uh, sustainable in art production, reduce the, you know, carbon using in galleries, you know, electricity, lighting, temperature, all of these things are all together. And is, we are just in the beginning of the debate and we need to talk more. But as you said, yes, cardi cotton is very consuming. A lot of things is not maybe sustainable, but it's a tradition. The other way we said we need to keep the traditions going is important preservation of the tradition, continue the tangible cultural heritage. You know, if you stop it, what happened to cultural heritage? But thank you so much, Sangeeta, for your time talking to us, to our audiences for Inside the Gallery podcast and all our best for the future. Thank you so much, Pedro. That's Professor Pedram Kosronajad in conversation there with Sangeeta Sandrasega. And you can find a few links to Sangeeta's work in the description of this podcast at www.insidethegallery.com.au, including the work held by the Museum of Contemporary Art in Sydney. You'll also find a transcript there thanks to the Australian Arts Channel and links to our Facebook, Instagram and newsletter alerts too. Thanks to Pedram for undertaking that discussion. Thanks to you too for taking a listen. Until next time, I'm Tim Stackpole. Bye-bye for now.